Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 35. After Hours with Reverend Brian McGreevy. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And this season we've been reading Till We Have Faces. But today is one of our After Hours episodes, so I'm joined by someone I met at the conference in North Carolina last year, Brian McGreevy. Reverend Brian McGreevy is Assistant to the Rector of Hospitality Ministry at the historic St. Philip's Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which was founded in 1680. He is married to his wife, Jane, and they have four children. He began by studying the law at Emory University and worked at an international finance and insurance trade association for over 15 years, becoming the Managing Director International. He and his wife later went on to run a bed and breakfast, and subsequently he felt a call to join the priesthood in the Anglican Church. He has recorded a podcast on the life of C.S. Lewis, and is now teaching a weekly class, also at his church, on the Screwtape Letters. Father Brian, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much. Great pleasure to be here. Now, here on Pints with Jack, we always have a drink of the week and a quote of the week. And so I'm enjoying a glass of McAfee's Benchmark Bourbon, which is basically hand sanitizer for the throat. Are you drinking anything? <laughs> I am. I have some very healthy Fentiman's ginger beer straight from the UK. So very appropriate for the occasion. Delightful. And for our quote of the week, I thought I would choose the passage that I know you have your class read out every time you meet to discuss the Screwtape Letters. It's from Scripture. It's Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Whew. I'm not used to doing it in that translation. That was difficult. <laughs> but with that, cheers. Cheers. Now, as I mentioned before that, you have your class read this out each time you meet to discuss the Screwtape Letters. Would you mind explaining why you do that? Uh, it is a wonderful passage, I think, to put you in the right frame of mind to talk about the screw tape letters because we live in a culture that wants to make uh, belief in the devil and even belief in evil sometimes uh, ridiculous. And so uh, having a dose of reality from that passage of realizing that there is in fact a battle and that we do in fact have an enemy. And part of what I love about the passage is that it's very proactive. One of the words that comes up over and over again, that passage is stand. And uh, I think that is one that would resonate with Lewis and his approach in the Screwtape Letters. Wonderful. Now, I gave a little brief overview of your life earlier, but would you mind just filling in some of the details? 
Well, uh, that could take a long time because it's been a very unusual path to ministry. But uh, I grew up here in Charleston and thought that I was uh, going to be a lawyer when I grew up. Uh, but I also thought that I was going to be an internationally renowned piano player. Uh, so went to university, majored in piano performance for a while. I was very involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, quickly realized I was not good enough to be a piano player to make money, uh, and so switched, uh, ended up in law school at Emory and got interested in intellectual property law, did that. Uh, it was great, uh, did a lot of work overseas, but as our family grew, it was more and more difficult being out of the country three weeks out of every month in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and then we had uh, basically a vision from God, which is a whole nother long story we won't go into, of moving back to Charleston and running a bed and breakfast. And uh, a number of miraculous circumstances aligned where that came to pass. I had done some uh, work in the law and theology program when I was in law school. And the bishop here in the diocese came after me and said he thought I should explore a call to ministry and look what happened. So uh, <laughs> I've been involved uh, in ministry uh, in an ordained capacity uh, for about 13 years now, and just absolutely love being at St. Philip's. Wonderful. Well, I seem to recall St. Jerome's brother was actually forcibly ordained to the priesthood by his bishop. They actually tied him up in the <laughs> liturgy. So I'm hoping your bishop was uh, a little bit more gentle than that. He was. He was a little more gentle and a little more subtle than that. <laughs> and so what about C.S. Lewis? When did you first come across him? Well, I first came across Lewis, as many people do, um, as a child, being read the Chronicles of Narnia by my parents and um, having grown up in uh, the Episcopal Church when I was little, uh, you heard a lot about C.S. Lewis. And then when I was 15, when I was on a school trip in the summertime, uh, we were in France and in England. And one of the days we were in England, we spent the day in Oxford and visited Maudlin, visited the Deer Park and all of that. And that fired up my Lewis interest even more. And then when I was in high school, um, in that period where so many people like me choose to become atheists, uh, I went off to college as a very proud atheist and then encountered a Christian who uh, encouraged me to read Mere Christianity, which I had not ever read before. And that was a major factor in my reconversion to the faith. Wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but your interest in Lewis appears to have grown. Because I first came across you when I was just searching for other C.S. Lewis podcasts out there, you know. I want things to listen to as well. And it's a bit weird listening to yourself. Uh, and that was when I came across the podcast feed where you were teaching more generally about C.S. Lewis rather than one particular one of his books. Yes. So uh, I was very fortunate when I was a student in InterVarsity to be mentored by a staff person named Paulette Catherwood. Uh, at that time, she was Paulette Moore. Uh, married Christopher Catherwood later, and Christopher's family was very connected with Lewis. Christopher is the grandson of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and his mother 
uh, was one of Lewis's pupils at Oxford uh, long ago, and her, her tutor was Hugo Dyson, who was one of the Inklings. And so uh, that was another Lewis connection. And then when I was working as the chaplain at a school here, I developed a course on Lewis that I taught as a seminar, um, did that for about 10 years, and uh, just continued to learn more and more and meet more and more people in the world of Lewis scholars and got bitten pretty hard by the bug. So I <laughs> uh, have continued to research and teach and speak on Lewis and have led some Lewis pilgrimages in the UK. And uh, it's just been a source of great joy. If you had to pick one thing, what is it that you think about Lewis that attracts you so much? Uh that is a very difficult question, but if I had, if I could only pick one, uh, it would definitely be Lewis's emphasis on joy, um, rooted in that concept of Zainzut, that stab of joy, but reflecting right through uh, all of the glorious writing in the Narnia books, and then particularly in the Weight of Glory, uh, you just feel the joy of the truth of the kingdom of God. Um, bursting out through everything he writes. Absolutely. Uh, I've got to say, one of the things I always really liked about the episodes as I started listening to you is the fact that you'd almost always begin your sessions with some piece of music as, as an illustration for what was going to be discussed that day. Yes, that is uh, something that is always uh, quite fun because I try to find something that's linked to what we're talking about. And it's also, I think, a great uh, subliminal lesson in the idea of how beauty is deeply linked with joy and deeply linked with truth and goodness and the gospel. And um, it's also a good guessing game for people in the class to see if they can figure out what the linkage is. And I have to say, they do very well. I try to find things that are obscure sometimes, and very often they they catch me out. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you mentioned about beauty uh in one of the classes you actually take everyone outside yes yes in that class we go out we're very fortunate that our churchyard uh has been more or less the same since the 1720s and it has some spectacular trees and so we go out in the churchyard and there's a little grouping of three trees there a dogwood a magnolia tree and then uh crepe myrtle tree and they're all quite beautiful in their own right and if you go to saint philip's you walk by them all the time but it's easy to not notice them so we go out and really spend some time pondering them looking at the light on the leaves looking at the shape of the flowers listening for the sound of the wind and the leaves of the trees all of that trying to recultivate a sense of wonder have you taken the Tolkien route and named the trees yet? Uh, we have not yet done that, but that may be coming. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're teaching a course on the Screwtape Letters, which is the book which Matt and I are going to be reading next season. Uh, but before we get to that, Matt and I, we've got a few more interviews. We're going to be talking about the Voyage to Dawn Treader. And so this was why we thought we'd get you on now, because we thought it'd be a great opportunity to introduce Screwtape to any of the listeners who, for whatever reason, haven't come across it yet. And also just to give them a flavor of what we're going to be talking about in season four. 
So to kick us off, can you just give us some background to the writing of the Screwtape Letters? Where did they come from? Sure. One of the things that's quite remarkable about Lewis and his writing is the way that uh, ideas come to him for things. And it's interesting when you look at the background of Screwtape, uh, it was during World War II in the darkest days of the Blitz in England, uh, Lewis had just listened to a broadcast of one of Hitler's speeches, uh, and he was very disturbed by it and then went to church and had slept through the service he usually went to and had to go to the late service, which he did not like because he knew that there was going to be a long sermon and uh, this was not perhaps his favorite preacher. And so he was uh, daydreaming during the sermon and doodling a bit and uh, had the idea of uh, doing a book on the whole idea of temptation, but as he said, viewed from the other side as one devil to another, trying to talk about how to tempt the human patient. And uh, it was interesting because right at that same time, Lewis was embroiled in the midst of a pretty heavy academic work, his preface to Paradise Lost on Milton's great masterpiece. So he's thinking a lot about devils in that context as well. And uh, I love the way Lewis's mind makes these kinds of connections. So he uh, went from that into writing these letters that were first serialized in The Guardian in the UK. One of the great things about that story of how they came about is it gives all of us who are in the clergy great hope that masterpieces may arise when we preach a really boring sermon. <laughs> People will be inspired despite what you say. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, and I do seem to recall, isn't in one version of the preface to the Screwtape Letters, he actually connects it to his science fiction trilogy. Yes, and that's one of the things that is quite fascinating is that because of the shortage of paper and the blitz going on, Lewis actually had several manuscripts of the Screwtape letters for the publisher because he was worried that they might be destroyed by bombs or fire or whatever. And in one of those that he'd given to Sister Penelope, who's one of the great correspondents with Lewis and his letters, uh, he had... Uh, encouraged her later to sell that manuscript if she needed it for money for her convent, which she did. And it ended up in the New York Public Library. And um, it was interesting because one of the Lewis scholars who you may know, um, Brenty Dickinson, who does the Pilgrim in Narnia, um, did some research, came across this preface, and he recounts, uh, Lewis recounts in that preface uh, that these are letters that are connected with the old solar and the whole system of things going on with Malachandra. And uh, he sets it all in the context of the space trilogy uh, and the truly cosmic and everlasting battle between good and evil. So it's just interesting to see that was on his mind as well. That didn't make it into the published preface, but it's an interesting insight into what Lewis was thinking. You almost wonder if he was trying to connect all of his fiction. So wait, which, which, who is the patient in The Great Divorce? Is he already one of the saints who's made it up to the mountain? 
That's right. You never know. You never know. And that's what's so fun with Lewis's work. He definitely makes you work for it sometimes. That's true. <laughs> so then let's just talk about screw tape in general. It's a work you clearly enjoy. What would you say are some of the main themes or your favorite passages in that work? Well, uh, there are so many passages that I think are absolutely glorious. One of the remarkable things about screw tape is that it is full of very, very practical advice of what it means to lead uh, what we're calling in class a boldly Christian life. And I think that's one of the things that's so appealing and timeless about it. And part of what has been interesting this time around, I've probably taught this book a half dozen times before, but this time I decided to try to do it from a different perspective of looking not so much at what the devil is trying to tempt the patient to, but to look instead at what he's trying to tempt the patient away from, with the idea of thinking that if you look at what he doesn't want the patient to do, what he wants the patient at all costs to avoid, that that probably is a recipe of what it might mean to really boldly live out your faith in Jesus Christ. So I've been looking through that lens, and it's made me feel uh, really stupid, in fact, for not having noticed before <laughs> that there's this enormous subtext all through these letters about habits and how very important habits are. And so much of what uh, screw tape and warm water trying to work on is to get the patient always to be feeling this thing or that thing, but to never actually let the feeling issue out into an action. And certainly if it does slip out into an action, to never allow those salutary actions to become habits. So I think that theme is one that is really, really important particularly for our culture today. And it's an interesting counterpoint. We've been looking some at another book called The Common Rule by Justin Early that just recently got named Christianity Today's Book of the Year. Uh, but we found it first before it was famous. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole book is about habits and how uh, and our emphasis on our feelings and our culture today that we've thrown out all of Christian history and the, the idea that habits, a rule of life, might actually be helpful. And another theme that I think is really important in Screwtape is the idea that pleasure and beauty are pointers to the kingdom of God, and that particularly when they are in their right context, the whole idea of uh, the beauty of a fire uh, but the fire in a fireplace instead of raging through a building, that when beauty and pleasure are in the right framework, they point us inexorably toward the truth of the gospel and the presence of the kingdom of God. And I think we live in an age that is starved for those things. Beauty, truth, and goodness are part of the patrimony of the church, but we don't talk about that very much. And I think in, uh, a world where secularism is rife, those are entry points and a bridge for people that think they've heard it all and don't want to hear the gospel. Uh, but beauty, truth, and goodness are something that they can appreciate. Absolutely. I think one of the passages, I first read this, I was going to, I think I was about 23. 
And I didn't remember reading this passage at all until I read it again in my early 30s when Screwtape is so furious because Wormwood lets the patient go on a nice walk, read a book that he actually enjoys, not just because it's fashionable, all of these very small pleasures. And even when Screwtape is talking about pleasures, he says we can't make any of them, we can only twist them. And he lists some of the great pleasures in life, and they seem on the surface to be so pedestrian, so simple, even just getting a glass of water. But all of these things he sees as so dangerous to let the patient experience. Yes, that is absolutely right. And I love that passage because he goes after him and says, and now for your errors. And he talks about letting the patient go on a walk, letting him go down by the old mill where it's so beautiful by the stream, letting him read that book that you just mentioned and have a cup of tea. All of those things, uh, which to us don't seem like a big deal, but to Screwtape, he realizes how those things put us in touch with simple goodness, a concept that we seem to have forgotten. And Lewis comes back to that theme with Screwtape several times uh, where he talks about not even letting the patient enjoy a meal because just the simple pleasure of eating a meal or, as you said, drinking a glass of water can turn the heart toward gratitude. And he ends one of those letters by saying, and after all, why should the creature be happy? <laughs> and I also wanted to circle back to what you said at the beginning about habits and feelings, because uh, I've been going through screw tape again with your course and in preparation for season four. And I was struck several times when he really wants the patients to lean into that. So, for example, when he prays, let him think that the value of his prayer is entirely derived by how he feels about it. If he's praying for courage, let him only think that, that prayer was any good, was of any use, if he feels courageous at the end of it. And he spends his time basically trying to manufacture those feelings. Yes, and that chapter, uh, the letter on prayer, is one of the the great ones in there, and one that I think we as the church need to hear today, because he shows that there is such a value in obedience, and that when we do what God has commanded, even though we don't feel like doing it, that that can make all the difference in the world. And he also has a fabulous section in that letter about posture for prayer, which is probably the least fashionable thing you could talk about. <laughs> There's a lot of very unfashionable things in that book. Yes. In modern Christianity, we want to slouch in our easy chair uh, for our prayer time. And Lewis talks about kneeling in these letters and you know, the screw tape should never let you know the, the posture of prayer, this whole idea of praying on your knees or lying down or holding your hands up in there, all those kinds of things are not good um, from Satan's point of view, because as he says, we are those disgusting amphibians uh, being half mortal and half immortal. And that uh, because of that, what we do with our bodies matters. And so that whole posture of prayer uh, is so important. 
and helps us with the obedience part of it. Now, this season we've been going through Till We Have Faces, and I actually had that passage in mind when we were reading about Orwell going up the mountain, and she hasn't been able to see Psyche's palace, but it's when she kneels down to get a drink from the river that she's able to see it. And my first thought is, her bodily posture matters here. Even if, even if she's not fully aware of it, this position of humility has done something in her soul to open her up to be able to experience this. Yes, I think that's so true. And it reminds me of an experience I had uh, living in a different city, going to a different church where we got a new rector who had a very revisionist view of things. And uh, we, in our traditional liturgy, as you probably know, there's always the confession of sin. And this minister, we first stopped kneeling for the confession of sin. Then uh, about a year later, we relegated the confession only to Lent. And then a year after that, we eliminated it altogether because the idea was that sin was an outmoded concept. But I think you're exactly right. There is humility that comes in the posture. And it's interesting in that the common rule book Uh, the first habit that he posits that we should adopt is kneeling prayer three times a day, which is very out of the box for most American Christians, but uh, something that I think is incredibly important. Yeah, it's something strange in modern Christianity where we seem to have adopted a strange form of Gnosticism, where we just don't even think about our body. Everything in our faith life is purely mental. Yet in the historic church, no, you kneel, you stand, you bow, you make the sign of the cross, you do all these physical actions because we're not just disembodied souls. That's exactly right. Yes, I think that that is part of what Screwtape is trying to get at all the time is uh, the more that you can get from Screwtape's point of view, the more you can get the patient to compartmentalize, to have his life in different baskets, if you will, that don't ever intersect or overflow into one another, then you can have this beautiful cognitive dissonance going on all the time. And he talks about that in the letter about the patient's mother and how he can treat her abysmally while also praying for her soul and feeling very virtuous about both. Yeah, because he says, well, he can, with a little bit of maneuvering, we can make praying for her soul really just be listing off all the things that she does that annoy him. And I'm sure we have all prayed that prayer when we say that we're praying for somebody, but what we're really praying for is that they stop doing all of those annoying habits that annoy us, regardless of whatever other good they might be doing. And he also says that the state of education is so bad, he doesn't even really know what praying for her soul even really means. So it's it's almost like this abstract thing over here. So rather than praying for her bodily ailments, we'll pray for something abstract, entirely separate from her, such that he can treat her like dirt one minute and then be praying for her soul the next. Yes, yes. And that goes right back to what we were talking about earlier with this whole idea of feelings, that if he can feel that he's praying for her in a very abstract way, rather than actually doing anything that might help her by being considerate or offering to help or any of those kinds of things, um, that if he if he persists just in focusing on those feelings and abstractions, then Screwtape has got him on that soft, slow slope uh, that goes to our Father below. Yeah, that 
that that I think is actually one of the more terrifying lines in the Screwtip Letters. There's a Casting Crown song called The Slow Fade, and it always puts me in mind of that. But he, he also talks about, related to feelings uh, and actions, he talks about your man being like a series of concentric circles with imagination, intellect, and then will. And he says, you've got to keep him on the outer edge. Let him think about the poor. Let him maybe feel compassion for the poor if you really have to, but just don't ever let him actually do something practical because that's dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And part of the, the beauty of that, I think, from Screwtape's point of view, is that if he can succeed in that, he ultimately completely neutralizes the church. If every believer just stays in their head all the time and doesn't ever let that issue out into any kind of action, then Satan's won. And that's the whole idea of uh, that he also talks about of not needing to tempt towards spectacular sin, uh, that the the little, little sins like being uh, overly aggressive at cards or things like that uh, do just as well, because the spectacular sins, people often think, oh, well, I would never do that. And uh, they, it says what Jesus says to the Pharisees, uh, they strain out a gnat, but they swallow a mountain. And it can be kind of tempting to get into that kind of mindset, because even as Screwtape says, these might seem like minor sins. I mean, the, way, the quickest way of shutting down any conversation between two Christians when one person thinks that something's important and the other doesn't is to accuse them of legalism, ac- accusing them of uh, thinking in terms of law rather than grace. But one of the geniuses of the Screwtape Letters, I think, is it helps us see the consequences of these small daily decisions that they accumulate over time. And as he talks about in Mere Christianity, we become transformed into heavenly or hellish creatures. We're going to live forever. We're going to be one of them. What are, what are our daily habits forming us into? Right. And there, there's that beautiful section right at the end of The Weight of Glory where he's talking about the fact that each choice that we make is helping the people we encounter toward one or the other of those destinies. And it is uh, something that implies a great uh, weight, really, for each choice that we make and that we don't just blithely go through our lives not thinking about the consequences of the choices that we make, but that we adopt a profoundly other-centered worldview, which is the one, of course, you see Jesus reflecting. And the letter in humility uh, about humility in Screwtape is so great about that. <laughs> you know, he says, I see your patient has become humble. Um, have you called his attention to that fact? <laughs> because as soon as you do that and you can get him to start priding himself on his great humility, then you've won the battle on that field as well. Yes. Yes. And if he catches himself and realizes what he's doing, congratulate him on that. He was, he was being prideful and he caught himself. <laughs> yes. Now, one of the aspects of the Screwtip Letters that I was a little disappointed Lewis didn't go into more. And like a lot of Lewis enthusiasts, I naturally started writing my own version of the Screwtip Letters. <laughs> I called mine the Bogwash Epistles. I, I only, only wrote a few letters, but I'm hoping in season four, I'll have time and fill out a few more. But the question of church attendance, 
because I don't know about you, but some of the worst thoughts, some of the most uncharitable thoughts, some of the nastiest thoughts I have ever had have usually been when I've been sitting in a pew somewhere. Because it's at that point that we come face to face with other Christians. Yes. Uh, the, the, it, it seems incredibly inconvenient that Christ formed us into a, a, a visible body. Because honestly, it would be much easier to be Christian if I didn't have to deal with any other Christians. Yes. Yes. And I think that is part of the disease of our age. Because we, particularly in this country, are so independent and think it's kind of me and Jesus against the world, which of course is a concept that is unknown to the New Testament. But Lewis does have two of the screw type letters uh, get into that. The first one is when he goes to church and screw tape wants to uh, call his attention to the uh, grocer with the greasy expression on his face and the woman who was the maniacal bridge player and all of these other things and get him flitting between those images and the image of the body of Christ, which is just abstract. And then somehow um, in his inner heart being disappointed that people are not wearing sandals and togas, <laughs> which would mean that they were really holy. And, and uh, then Lewis does in another letter a great uh, exposition about church shopping and the whole idea of uh, Father Spike and uh, I forget the other guy's name, but I always think of him as Father Milk Toast because um, <laughs> that's essentially what he is. And the idea in both of those letters is that church attendance is to be discouraged. Because if they attend church, if the patient attends church, there's always the risk that the Holy Spirit might break through and the impenetrable cloud might surround the patient of the presence of God or other people praying for him, and then all is lost. And what's amazing is that Lewis wrote this in England in the 40s rather than in the 21st century and America where church shopping, I would say, is has reached a whole new level, where people will drive a long way because, well, this church has a coffee bar that's they ha it's the only place to get a latte, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's quite remarkable. The whole work is unbelievably prescient because there is there's a section in one of the letters where he talks about the power of nothing with a capital N and talks about the man sitting alone in the evening doing nothing, frittering away his time. And it is quite remarkable because it it sounds as if he is describing someone either sitting with a phone scrolling through social media or channel surfing or um, binging on some Netflix show that they've seen 10 times before. But it sounds like that is what he's describing. But of course, none of those things existed when he was writing. Yeah, it's actually very hard, very hard to read that section and not just think of that. It, you do kind of wonder what was Lewis actually thinking of at the time? How 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 did how did people waste time back in the forties? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Uh, there's another theme that I noticed throughout the Screwtape Letters was on the subject of language. Uh, he talks about the philology department in hell and how they constantly try and muddle words or attach an awful lot of very nasty connotations to what would otherwise be good words. Yes. 
And I, I love that part because that is one of my favorite aspects of that hideous strength as well, because in the nice, in that hideous strength, uh, part of what the Institute is trying to do is to rob words of their meanings. Mm -hmm. So here we have uh, Satan and his minions working tirelessly to not only rob words of their meanings, but to change the meaning. And one of the most beautiful sections on that is where he's talking about having substituted unselfishness for charity and love. Then instead mm. of having a proactive virtue that is something that can be uh, acted upon by people uh, that encompasses a whole range of beautiful actions, instead of that, you get a negation, uh, a negation of selfishness. And then the other word that he plays with several times in there is Puritan. And he talks about how the philology department has had a triumph uh, by turning the word puritanical into uh, really a phrase of disapprobation, of uh, really being insulting to call someone a Puritan, uh, which, of course, to people like Richard Baxter or some of the other great Puritan theologians would have been horrifying. <laughs> If I had to pick one part of the Screwtech Letters that makes me uncomfortable, it would be the section where he's talking about how the man is to view things, and specifically his time. Screwtape wants to encourage the patient to regard various things as his own, and in particular, his own time. And this makes me uncomfortable because I'm a busy guy, I have a lot of things to do, and I just get so infuriated when time that I thought was mine, I, I, I'm either feel cool to or even worse when circumstances mean that I have to portion out time that I was not intending on spending on other people. <laughs> well, I suspect you and I are probably wired pretty similarly about that because <laughs> that part makes me very uncomfortable. But in that way where you know it makes you uncomfortable because it's speaking a truth that you need to hear. Mm. And I think that that section, um, and it's a theme he comes back to in several of the letters, part of the reason that uh, it keeps coming up is because I think it is absolutely vitally important. Because if we realize that we are, in fact, as Lewis says elsewhere, made for another world, then our whole understanding of what time is and what time means and which citizen, uh, which kingdom we find ourselves to be citizens of, all of that shifts dramatically when we see that in the light of scripture. And it changes from an idea of ownership to an idea of gifting and of stewardship. And there's a, there's a great little essay that's been making the rounds a lot lately uh, where Lewis talks about uh, how do you respond to living under the threat of atomic war. And uh, it has some of the same roots as this sermon, Learning in Wartime. But it's the, the whole – it goes back to that whole idea of time again and remembering that if we really want to have a scriptural view of – Christian view of time, we have to understand that each moment that we have is a gift from God that's to be received with gratitude 
And uh, if we need to let some of it go, then it wasn't ours in the first place, which is much easier intellectually uh, to say than it is to live out experientially. Absolutely. (laughs) I still hate that section. (laughs) (laughs) I feel it chafing against me. Uh, In the final few minutes, have you got any any other parts of Screwtape that you think are particularly worth pointing out? Um, I guess just two things. One thing that I just think is really amusing is that uh, in the 1940 serial of the Screwtape letters, when it was running in The Guardian in the UK, there was a rural clergyman that wrote a letter of protest to the newspaper editor saying that the advice in these letters seemed to be erroneous and in some cases positively diabolical. And uh, (laughs) he was quite incensed that they should be publishing such a thing. It's like when you post something from Babylon B on your Facebook page and people get all angry about, I can't believe they're doing this. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that is really great. But the other thing that I, I love in the screw tape letters is this concept of the impenetrable cloud, uh, which again goes to it's not exactly a habit uh, that Satan's trying to tempt us away from, but there are certain things that when they are part of the life of a Christian, render that Christian opaque. Uh, to the vision and temptations of Satan. And some of the things that you see in there are love that is deeply rooted in Christ, uh, self-sacrificial service to others, prayer, the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, prayer for others or others praying for you. All of those things create the impenetrable cloud. And I, I love that image because it's one that shows up over and over again. And it's a reminder that Satan is not the most powerful one. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of that scene uh, in The Lord of the Rings uh, when Gandalf is uh, arraying himself in the light of Arnor and says, uh, you shall not pass. And he's got sort of that bubble around him that I think Peter Jackson shows really well in the movie. Uh, But it's sort of that same idea that when that is around you, um, Satan can't get at you. Wonderful. Well, Father Brian, thank you so much for chatting with us about your ministry and the Screwtape Letters. To close things out, can you please tell people where they can find out more about you and your podcasts? Um, Sure. Yeah, you can go to the... St. Philip's website, which is stphillips.church, or you can go on Apple Podcast, and there is the Screwtape Letters podcast. There's also a C.S. Lewis and the Christian Life podcast, and there also is uh, a podcast on the Inklings. So uh, all of those. Um, don't get distracted if you put in Brian McGreevy and find Hemlock Grove. Um, <laughs> Hemlock Grove is a series of erotic vampire thrillers, <laughs> not written by me, but written by someone with the same name. So don't be confused. You missed out, there. <laughs> Listeners, please join us next time when I'll actually be sharing the audio of a talk which I gave on the Screwtape Letters in Los Angeles. And please come back next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.